You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the transit zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which I record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respect to their elders. Our guest today is no stranger to the zone. Indeed, he's a zonester himself. Tim Dunlop is a writer, blogger, and a regular public speaker on the challenges to democracy and the opportunities to buttress Australia's, the still-evolving mediascape, especially since the digital revolution, and the nature of work as technology, including robotics and artificial intelligence, keeps developing. His fourth and latest book is Voices of Us, the independence movement transforming Australian democracy. Tim chose to chart, describe and analyse what happened with the last federal election in Australia, with the rise and remarkable success of community independence, the so-called Teals, in were once Liberal Party blue ribbon seats, and also the Greens capturing seats from both Labor and Liberal, especially in Brisbane. Tim, welcome back. This is an historic moment after all those transit zone online recordings with you and Margot Kingston. Here we are face-to-face in your South Bank apartment, very old school, very pre-COVID. Welcome. Thank you, Peter. It occurs to me that every word in the title of your book warrants its own discussion and exploration. It's quite a dense title. So let's keep the wide-angle lens on initially, Tim. What were the harbingers, in your opinion, for this seismic shift in Australian electoral politics, the last federal election? Was the first orange-garbed election of Cathy McGowan as an independent in Indi and in northeastern Victoria regional seat, defeating the very unpopular Sophie Mirabella, the identifiable start of this specific journey, or were figures such as the late Peter Andrin in another regional seat, Calair in New South Wales, or Andrew Wilkie in urban Tasmania, also harbingers? Um, yeah, I'd say all of the above. I think that's the remarkable and maybe defining thing about what happened at the 2022 election is that a lot of stuff that had been bubbling away under the surface or had actually broken the surface came together in a way that it hadn't come together before. So I think certainly pioneers like Peter Andron are important. Cathy McGowan was vitally important to what happened in 2022 when she was elected, when she, after two terms in office, handed off to Helen Haynes and Helen Haynes, as another independent, managed to retain the seat as an independent. That was a huge moment too. So all of this stuff started coming together. It's sort of amazing how successful that independence movement ended up being in 2022. So I think it was a combination of things that have been building for a long time and then some specific things that were specific to the 2022 moment. The previous three years of the Morrison government was a key factor as well. So as you take that very big overview, looking right back to the Federation and the various independents we've had from the left and the right, some of them very right wing, I'm thinking of certain ones in the Senate over this period of time, what are the tendrils, what are the connections between all those previous independents, including sitting members like Andrew Wilkie, still in the House of Reps from Tasmania, a seat near Hobart, and that new wave, those five women particularly, that we've come to call the Teals? Yeah, it's a good question. I think what it ultimately specs to is that as 
Australia has become a more complex and diverse sort of society, the notion that two major parties, essentially the right and left represented by the coalition parties and the Labor Party, I think people increasingly felt unrepresented by those categories of political representation. They no longer fitted into those boxes. Society as a whole didn't fit into those boxes. And, you know, that's that's been the case all the way through. So you've had, you know, an occasional independent uh, sneaks in here and there. The, the nature of voting in the upper house has meant people have been able to express their dissatisfaction with the two major parties or, you know, buy some insurance for themselves against the two major parties by having smaller parties and independents represent them in the upper house as well. And then gradually this has moved over into the lower house. So I think what connects them all is voters looking for representation that they feel genuinely represents them in the immediate years after the war the labor party and the coalition you know managed to divide most people up between them and fulfill that role of representation but as i say as things have got you know kind of more complex and more diverse as a nation those boxes don't fit anymore so we have indi a regional seat in victoria as you mentioned, Cathy McGowan is re-elected, then hands over by community activity yet again to Helen Haynes. That's a, an interesting template, but it is in the country. She was certainly from the right. That's that particular electorate, but it formed a template, and they used the kitchen table conversation methodology. But let's look at Uringa, Zali Stegall. Take us through some of the history of that, because that is more clearly the beginning of the voices of us that we came to know in the last 2022 election. Yeah, I think that's true. Voices of Warringah was started mainly by a woman called Louise Hislop, and she actually spoke to me around about the time she was forming it because she wanted to talk to someone who had a bit of a background in thinking about these matters. And I went up and gave a talk to their organisation when it first got off the ground, which was a very interesting experience. So Louise had, had some experience working with another independent candidate who tried in the election before Zali Stegall was successful, James Matheson, who used to be a TV personality at the time. And he was very instrumental in turning people around. He actually said to lawyers, we don't have to win, we just have to move the hands on the clock enough so that whoever has a go next time is in with a chance. And that's what happened. Then you had Wentworth on the other side of the harbour, Malcolm Turnbull's electorate, and that was a big moment for Warringah as well. And a lot of the people who worked on the Phelps campaign went and worked in Warringah. Again, you know, it, it didn't come out of nowhere. Zali Stegall was actually elected in 2019, so she was re-elected in 2022. So that's another big point. You know, people are acclimatising themselves to the idea that maybe we can actually put our vote somewhere else than with the major parties. In Warringah, with the first Zali Stegall election in 2019, of course, there was what you have to call the hate figure of Tony Abbott. And Tim, in a way, there was an after-echo of that battle against Tony Abbott in Kuyong with the then-treasurer, Josh Feidenberg, and the indie Monique Ryan. There was another sort of hate figure. I'm intrigued by what you're pushing against, the foils that form up the dynamics of these particular contests. Very clear with Tony Abbott, 
pretty clear with Josh Frydenberg and perhaps even with Tim Wilson in Zoe Daniels' electorate of Goldstein, less so with Trent Zimmerman perhaps in North Sydney. But do you acknowledge there is an element of the hate figure in some of these contests? The ones you name, I'd say certainly that's the point, but not in all of them. Jason Falinski in McKellar, the electorate north of Warringah in the Northern Birches in Sydney, I don't think he was hated. In fact, I spoke to Voices of McKellar at one stage and most people told me they thought he was an okay guy. There was no animosity. He wasn't a hate figure. What they didn't like, and this became central to the whole success of the independence movement, I think, they had really come to recognise that just because their local members said the right thing to them in local meetings, it didn't mean he was going to vote that way because he was obliged to follow party discipline once he was in the parliament. So, Jason Falinski could and did say all the right things in his electorate about climate change in particular, but then he voted the same way as Barnaby Joyce. They all recognised that and they were no longer willing to put up with that. So, talking of hate figures, the boo figure was Barnaby Joyce and you even had things like Sharmaby in Wentworth, you keep reminding people. With Jason Falinski, as we interviewed various people around that electorate, it became clear that he was not listening. That was the difficulty in communicating with Jason Falinski and similarly Tim Wilson. So that was the other side of the ledger, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think it's part of the problem with the top-down model of political representation that the major parties represent. They're not really representing communities in the parliament. They're representing the party in the community. People really didn't like that. So you do get that very kind of imperious top-down sort of thing. It's interesting that, you know, those candidates that you mentioned, they sort of tried to relabel themselves as new liberals. There was that whole thing. So they were purposely setting themselves against figures like Barnaby Joyce and Scott Morrison and other more right-wing figures within the Liberal Party. But you've got to think, there's something pretty wrong with your party when you're trying to distance yourself from it. So they kind of wanted the best of both worlds. They wanted the advantages of being the member of a party, but they wanted to pretend in the communities that they weren't part of that party. Of course, that doesn't wash. It didn't wash. They were kind of wiped off the map, weren't they? It's easy to forget that there was some debranding going on with people like Jason Felinski and some of the others threatened by the Teals, as we now call them. And they even pinched some of the turquoise livery in some cases to put on posters and all that sort of thing was going on. And there was a realisation by both the party figures and perhaps the, the media generally of what was happening with independence. But let's come back to that a bit later. I want to focus now just for a few moments on the word movement, which is in the title of your latest book. And this becomes really important, doesn't it? The idea of a movement. What in your view, after you've really thought about it, analysed it, looked at the dynamics... What is the character of this movement? Local representation. That's the bottom line. I think that's absolutely the bottom line. And it's kind of not a joined up movement. They get accused all the time of you know, you're really a political party. So it's not a movement in that sense. But there is this commonality of values around local representation and then a couple of key issues. As we know, they really focused in on gender issues and climate change and integrity in politics. And these were things people were, you know, really genuinely angry about in these communities, in the nation as a whole. So there were very good things for them to focus on. So I think it's that sense of we, we actually want independent representation. We want our communities represented in a way that they're genuinely representing us. They're not representing a party back to us. 
in the community. They wanted that bottom-up sort of feel about their representation. And I think that's the nature of the movement. Movement maybe overstates what actually happened, but I, I think it's a reasonable word under the circumstances, yeah. A movement has that impulse from the grassroots, but as electoral successes occur, and of course the Liberal Party right through beat the drum of it's really a party, it's not a movement, it's a party, and talked about Simon Holmes Court and the Climate 200 funding, etc. It's really a party. But as electoral success happens, does that erode or does that bolster the efficacy of that movement? Well, we're going to see, aren't we? We don't, we don't know the answer to that yet. Um, my feeling is that it won't. I, I think whatever criticisms you can lay at the feet of the teals, and certainly people do lay a lot of criticisms at their feet, especially around the notion of you're really a party, all that sort of nonsense. I think they are genuinely committed to their communities and they recognise that their success comes from that commitment. So I think there's huge incentives for them not to become a stitched up, all in it together movement party sort of thing. They have to maintain their independence at that community level because that is the nature of their success in their communities, in their electorates. I guess that you found reading the Liberal Party Review put together by former federal director of the Liberal Party of Australia, Brian Lochnane, incidentally the spouse of Peter Credlin, and also Senator Jane Hume. I just want to read you one thing from it because I want your reaction. This is Recommendation 33. It is headed Teal Operations and Structure. The Federal Director to coordinate a specific project to identify all available information on the background, history and functioning of the Teal campaigns, putting them all under one umbrella there. This should also include the collection of all available public information on the Teal campaign, the voting record of Teal MPs, their social media and other comments. As part of this, the party should work with relevant divisions and patron senators to share information to assist in efforts to scrutinise Teal incumbent activities and public commentary. How do you read that? It's like a perfect encapsulation of everything that's wrong with the Liberal Party's approach, particularly to these electorates. It's totally aggressive, over-the-top, top-down. We're going to find out what's wrong with these people, then we're going to tell you what's wrong with them, and then you're going to vote for us. It misses the whole point of the success of community independence is the community. You know, that's the secret sauce. You start at the bottom and work up. All of these candidates emerged from a bottom-up community process. They weren't imposed by anyone. They didn't come in and say, vote for me. They were part of the discussions and then were more or less invited to be the candidates. So the bit that you just read, out, I, I read that when it first came out as well, and you just got to throw up your hands. They're so missing the point. The notion that they're going to come in and dig dirt somehow on these community independence, you know, people who in a formal life were respected solicitors or paediatricians, you know, we're going to dig dirt on those people and tell you what's really wrong with them. It's just so ridiculous and it just underlines how deluded they are about where they actually sit. And the fact that that was in the, the Liberal Party document, which was meant to, you know, be the beginning of the fight back, just tells you a lot about how deluded they actually are. What made you spend so much rightly blood, sweat and tears on these particular politicians? I refer especially to the five what we call teals. As a man of the left, these women are far from revolutionaries, Tim. 
<laughs> they all support, albeit with different emphases between them, as we've seen since they took up their positions as MPs, the neoliberal agenda. They talk community, but enact and use the rhetoric overall of competition and individualism. How could any of them be drivers towards a more progressive Australia as you might envisage it? Yeah, that's a really good question. It is true that politically I sit well to the left of them and do worry about that. And I discuss this in the book that this is one of the things that they're going to have to come to terms with is that notion of centrism that they use where socially progressive and economically conservative is a circle that they probably can't square at the end of the day. And this is the nature of politics. You don't go into politics or commentate on politics or be a citizen and expect to get everything that you want. You want a system that has that diversity, has different points of view. What you have to have is representatives, candidates who you can trust in their opposition to your position. So even though they want to do things differently and they have different views on especially matters to do with economics than someone like me has, I have a sense of trust in their basic commitment to the good of their communities and the good of the country that I'm going to argue against certain things that they're going to do and criticise them and all of that. But I don't feel like the country's going to go down the drain if I don't win every single argument. You know, me, people like me on our side of politics don't win every single argument. And I think that's the key thing that democracies around the world are losing. And it's often the people on the right who have gone so extreme and have become so bizarre. We see it in Britain, we see it in the United States in particular, that you wouldn't trust them, you know, looking after your dog, let alone your country sort of thing. They're just extreme in their beliefs and they want to get rid of, you know, the classic example in America with the Roe versus Wade, the way the Supreme Court changed the ruling on that. You get into a very extreme right-wing view of society. I think the community independents bring a bit of civilization back into the standard political dispute between left and right. So although I don't agree with their politics in every respect by any stretch of the imagination, I do trust them to do the job well and I'm happy to have the argument with them about different things in the way politics should be done. Just holding in our mind the idea of the kitchen table conversations, which I want to just delve into a little bit more deeply in a moment, but one thing that came up over and over again during these Transit Zone podcasts, both before the election was called and then during the election, was looking at the formula necessary within these, particularly these Liberal Blue Ribbon seats, for a community-based independent to win the seat. And that there was a formula involved. You had to try and come in second. You had to draw support right across. You couldn't just rely on disaffected Liberals, for example, and, oh, no, we're not going to vote for the Liberal Party anymore. We'll vote for you. That was never going to work. So that's perhaps forgotten in some of the analysis that's going on. How clear are you in your analysis that what happened in the federal election 2022 actually delineated clear trend lines towards the future of our democracy. I do talk about this, and I, th I think this is one of the things that's going to be the ultimate test of the success of this, let's call it a movement, away from the major parties, is the extent to which that 
methodology can be used more broadly across electorates throughout the throughout the country, not just in you know fairly well-to-do, formerly blue ribbon liberal type seats. To what extent does that methodology work in other demographics? Basically, don't forget, Indo is rural. It doesn't fit the mould in that sense, and it was really the originator of this. That community engagement, the kitchen table conversations methodology that they use, whatever you call it. Like the Greens did a version of it, but it was more based around door knocking, etc. The bottom line is it's bottom up and it's community engagement. And it really is about listening, hearing and responding to what communities want. This is what democracy is meant to be about. So, you know, the incredible thing about that is it works. We That's what the 2022 election showed us. Maybe it doesn't work every time, but maybe it does, you know. Again, this is another thing we're going to find out as time goes on. Probably the key point to make here is that at the last federal election was the first time that more than 30% of people had voted for someone other than the major parties. So that's a lot. That's getting on to a third of the population. I call that the elevated middle of Australian politics. If that elevated middle maintains those sorts of numbers, there is by definition demand for alternative sorts of representation. If those alternative sorts of representation, whether they're independents or smaller parties, are going to be successful and actually convert into being elected, then there's no way around it. They have to do this community engagement. It is an essential part of the whole process. One of the comments that really stuck in my mind, a number of them did during our Transit Zone podcast, was Dennis Ginnivan, who you mentioned in the book and one of the activists involved in the voices of in Indi and elsewhere. He said there are more members in the Richmond Football Club than there are of all the political parties in Australia. Only a tiny number of our fellow citizens are actually members of political parties, yet they run the show. Those political parties run the show. It's an extraordinary realisation, really. Bearing in mind what you've just said, is it correct to see the community independence as essentially Liberal Party splitsters attracting disaffected moderates from the party in those very affluent seats? And that's taking account of what we've just said about the absolute imperative to draw people in right across the parties. After all, both Allegra Spender and Kay Cheney are from Liberal dynasties. What of this narrative that you mentioned in the book, I know you've mentioned in a lot of your interviews, of the Labor and Greens tactical voting in the last election, and this is in those very affluent seats. Are we seeing in some ways, and Margot, you and I have discussed this in the podcast, are we seeing a bit of a slow motion schism in the Liberal Party or the LNP itself by these independents? Without a doubt. You and Margot interviewed Kylie Tink and she said absolutely that the turning point was when Malcolm Turnbull was dumped and Scott Morrison was inserted as Prime Minister. That was the kind of the wake-up moment for her. I think I think that was true for a lot of people. They, you know, this this sense that the party had left them rather than they left the party, that it had become more extreme, that it was ignoring key issues, the big three key issues in particular, climate change, gender issues and political integrity. They just didn't feel the Liberal National Party Coalition didn't represent their values anymore. And so they wanted to look elsewhere. The idea of Tactical voting has come up a lot since the election, and I think it's definitely true to say that clearly Greens voters in the blue ribbon liberal seats knew they were never going to get a Green. 
elected. So in that sense, they voted tactically for the independent as a way of getting rid of the liberal. There definitely was that sort of decision-making that was going on. Just calling it tactical voting as some, like there was the AES report from the ANU that came out a few weeks ago, and it talked very much in terms of how the Teals were elected through tactical voting of Greens and Labor Party voters. But I think it really underplays the conscious decision that voters in those electorates made. They weren't just voting tactically, they were voting positively for the independent and the values that the independent candidates were espousing. So I think it goes beyond tactical voting. And we see this with the re-election of Cathy McGowan, the handover to Helen Hayes. This isn't tactical. They're voting for these people. They're voting for the policies and values that these candidates espouse. Zali Stegall was re-elected. That wasn't tactical voting. It might have been tactical in 2019 to get rid of Tony Abbott an element of tactical voting in there. She won every booth in Warringah in 2022. You know, that was a very positive vote for Zali Stegall. It wasn't a tactical vote to keep the Liberals out. It was to keep Zali in. (laughs) I don't think we should just think of it in terms of tactical voting. It's a much more positive thing than that. As to whether Labor is vulnerable to this, absolutely. And we actually saw it at the last election. They lost the seat of Fowler. In a West Sydney electorate, very safe Labor, catapulted in Christina Canale, a Labor heavyweight, and were thrashed by the local independent Dilay, who won quite comfortably there in a safe Labor seat. So Labor's vulnerable as well. A very different sort of independent she is. Now, these electorates such as Goldstein and Kooyong in Victoria, or McKellar, Wentworth in Sydney are very affluent, as we've already noticed, and wealth generation-oriented. Zoe Daniel had wealth as part of her slogans, you might remember, and when interviewed about private education, she gave a very, well, I'll be polite and say ambiguous answer about that. Inequality, the gig economy, poverty, though Zoe Daniel, to give her her dues, did emphasise aged care and went into some of those social justice areas. But on the whole, those five independents weren't talking about inequality, for example, very much in their campaigns. We've already seen distinct differences between the newly elected independents around key issues such as industrial relations. We meanwhile see someone like Sophie Scomps from McKellar advocating for a circular economy around the polluting byproducts of renewables manufacture. How different do you imagine the next federal election to be for these indies? What will be, in your analysis, the key factors for their re-election? Well, I, I have no answer in terms of, I'm not in a position to know in terms of those kind of big policy issues. Their success will depend entirely on how good they are at representing their communities. So talking to, staying in contact with the local communities and representing their issues and values, climate change will continue to be a huge driver of this. But of course, once you start talking about climate change, then you know, you're know you forced to talk about well, what does that mean for the economy? And I think that will bring them up against some of the unexamined presumptions about how they think an economy should work. I might be being unfair in saying this, but I do get the impression they kind of think you can replace industrial extractive fossil fuel energy capitalism with green capitalism, so-called, becoming a green superpower and exporting solar and wind power 
around the world. I think that's very much the direction we have to move in, but there are issues around what that means for how you run the economy, how you distribute wealth, et cetera, et cetera. But this, this brings me back, this brings me back to the, the point I was making before. As it stands and the sorts of issues that you just mentioned there around, especially around unionism or maybe around the tax issue, the stage three tax cuts, which most of them, I think, still support. Given their electorates, they would probably be foolish not to support those sorts of views in in those policy areas. But this is what I mean by trusting them to do the job of coming to terms with the harder realities of governing. They're smart. They're willing to listen to the evidence. And as long as they're still bringing that kind of mindset to their governing to their representative role, then I'm fairly confident that that they're not wedded to an ideology, that they will change their mind if, if that's what the evidence says. So I'm putting a lot of faith in them to do that. This is what I mean about trusting them. I, th- I think, even though we have different political views, I trust them to follow the evidence, I guess is what I'm saying. There are going to be issues, if not in this term, maybe in the next term, as it does with the Labor Party all the time, brings them up against hard choices. And they're going to have to confront the fact that maybe they can't just, well, this is what my electorate wants. I'll do that if that contradicts the evidence. And it'll test their skills as representatives to be able to go back to the communities and say, you know what, I actually think we should be doing this rather than this because what's good for Wentworth mightn't necessarily be good for the whole country sort of thing. In that sense, just going back to your, almost your first question about the, the history of independence, someone like Peter Andrum was brilliant at that. He was one of the few parliamentarians who stood up against John Howard and the children overboard thing. He campaigned on not blocking asylum seekers, etc. And, you know, he was re-elected in a, you know, a relatively, well, it's now a national party seat, Claire. He's a fantastic model, I think, of that principled independent who was willing to realise that the relationship with the community goes two ways and that with the benefit of more knowledge and more information, he went back to the electorate and said, you know what, I think we should be doing this. I know everybody else in the country thinks we should be closing the borders, but I don't think we should be doing that. And and people listened to him and, and voted for him. He also opposed the Iraq war. He did oppose the Iraq war too. And he, again, he was, well, I suppose he had Labor opposed the Iraq War as well, so I, I, I guess that was a, he was a little less on a, a shag on a rock in that case. But with the with the asylum seeker stuff, the children overboard stuff, he, he was almost a lone voice in the parliament who really spoke out strongly against it, and his community respected him for it. So I would very much hold him up as a model to our current batch of crossbenchers. For me, probably one of the most important podcasts we did in this Transit Zone series was with Mary Crooks and Alana Johnson on the kitchen table conversation methodology. It's interesting, isn't it, that Mary Crooks is a woman of the left and the methodology that she put to the test and evolved earlier than the Indi with Kathy McGowan and Alana Johnson came from the left largely, came from a collective consciousness, perhaps back to the civil rights and to other leftist projects uh, earlier. It is very interesting, I think, historically that, in fact, it was absorbed 
worked in Indi, then absorbed again by the five women candidates that we now know as the Teals and the independent MPs now in Parliament. Is there a danger that methodology itself could become, what's the right word, tokenistic, a little bit cynically applied, lose its inner potency, if you like, and its inner authenticity? There is a risk. This is something I think Mary Crooks and people like Alana Johnson have thought about. The interview that you and Margot did with those two women is absolute must listen to for anybody interested in these issues because they absolutely articulate beautifully the way the methodology works. And it is a methodology. There is a process. It isn't just sitting around a kitchen table and, you know, what do you reckon about this issue? A record of the conversation is kept. A summary document is produced of the issues that were talked about and the different points of view that were raised during the conversation. And then all the participants are given a copy of that so that they can clearly say that they were listened to, that they were heard, that their point of view was recorded. And it's that that is absolutely key to it. It's that that gives people the sense of ownership of it and trust in the conversation methodology itself that they are being heard in these situations. You need to do it properly and it takes time and it takes effort and you need people who understand the methodology to be running those things. This is a risk going forward that independents just talk to people in their communities without that structure around it and that's not going to work. So um, it is something that needs to be looked at and constantly worked on so that that essence of the methodology is maintained. And that's true for the established candidates as much as it is for any new independents that come along. Tim, I want to talk about the elephant in the room. And in a way, what started this series of podcasts, The Transit Zone with you, Margot, and me in coronavirus world, what role did COVID actually play in this last election? When we interviewed, you might remember, Susie Holt, the independent candidate for Groom, based around the regional city of Toowoomba, the first time here in the transit zone, she seemed to think then, when we asked her, that it was very important. There's a big health sector there in Toowoomba, as you know, and you'll remember the argy-bargy around a quarantine centre there. How did the mismanagement of the pandemic by Morrison and, of course, Berejiklian as well, and others, play into the 2022 federal election, especially in those seats where Indies were running. And I remember that moment once they got into Parliament with the two sides of Parliament with masks on and masks off. That's changed now. They've all got masks off. That viral moment with Monique Ryan, now the member of Kuyong, saying, put your masks on. So what role do you think COVID actually played? And I add that we're still in the middle of a COVID pandemic. We are. I think it was important. I think it was one of the key issues that showed people that the Morrison government was not very good at governing. The slyness with the rollout of the vaccine was, I think, he never recovered from that. The bushfires before that, the I don't hold a hose, mate, nonsense that he went on with. But then showing up at the footy and pretending everything was okay in those early stages, pre-vaccine stages, and then the very slow rollout that we endured with the COVID vaccines. I think that just imprinted on people that this was a guy you couldn't really trust with those big issues. So I think that, you know, that's the key role that COVID played. It upset a lot of other balances in society. I, I think in some ways it actually made us realise how important 
social response is, that we are a society, we're not just an economy. We've kind of forgotten some of these lessons, I think. As you say, you know, we're still in the middle of this pandemic, but we're kind of pretending it's not there um, in a way that we didn't before. But that's a whole other story. I think at the time, it really did bring home to people, oh gosh, you know, you can't just be a bunch of individuals, that this is a public health issue and you need a public, in other words, a government response to be able to really deal with this properly. Thank heavens we had a public health system, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it actually focused people in on those kinds of issues, things that had been dividing us for a long time actually ended up bringing us together. But then it was being run by a government that we didn't really trust to run it. When I was talking to Sean Kelly, author of The Game, about that idea of the Morrison legacy and Morrison himself claiming that he didn't really worry about his legacy, I would suggest that we do have a Morrison legacy and it's a very negative one. And it's what we're living through right now with no masks, with people still pushing back against reasonable public health measures as if they were impositions on their freedom. Mm. He succeeded in that and so did Berejiklian and that idea of trust which you're circling around too, lack of trust in the government, the idea of dictator Dan for locking down to save lives and to protect our health system. I had an up-close and personal experience at the Austin Public Hospital recently in their emergency department. I waited for seven hours for emergency treatment. Then I was told I had to wait for another five hours. That's a long time to wait in an emergency department, and it was full of people with COVID, little children with COVID coming in. I think that legacy we're living through right now. So there is a Morrison legacy, and it's been that erosion of our care about our fellow human beings, and a certain callousness has arrived and a a certain oblivious approach to the reality of all the deaths, a lot of them in aged care, but not all of them. Is that the Morrison legacy? Yeah, it's it's an interesting point. Part of what I argue in the book is that with the advent from about the early 1980s, from the Hawke-Curting government and the institution of what's generally called neoliberal sort of policies, which privatise things and accentuate individual rights over collective rights and individual profit over public funding and that sort of thing, that we probably had become a more individualistic society. In the early stages of COVID, as I said, I think we reacted against that and realised that we did want a public response, a social response to these matters. They're still out there protesting um, various anti-vaxxer groups and um, anti-mask groups and variations on that sort of theme, who are a minority, but a a significant minority of people. And it probably does reflect a change in the overall nature of Australian society that we we do value that individual freedom in a way. in, In a lot of ways, I think it's a discussion we haven't properly had. The nature of our public discourse is dominated, especially the media, by that attitude. And so it gets a pretty good hearing, the notion that making someone put a mask on on a bus or a tram is an imposition on their freedom, rather than the bigger discussion, which is, well, what about the freedom of the person who doesn't want to catch your COVID or your cold or whatever it is? My freedom from oppression or your freedom to infect me. I don't think we've properly had that discussion. And and I think that reflects, as I say, the nature of the people who dominate our public discourse in the media especially and maybe we need to have that but again you know this is this is another thing where the nature of the community independence pushes back against that 
that was a rallying of grassroots of of communities working together to achieve ends. So we have definitely not gone down irrevocably that individualistic social construction that you see in America. And I don't think we ever will. But it is fraught. And it is, you know, it is the nature of political debate that you're going to have these differences of opinions around that. As I'm saying this, I'm sort of thinking, yes, there is evidence of both things happening. And I I guess that is just the nature of um, political and social change. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. My guest this time is fellow Transit Zone podcaster Tim Dunlop, here to discuss and explore some of the themes in his latest book, Voices of Us, the independence movement transforming Australian democracy. Tim, you'll frame three pillars that act to buttress, in your opinion, the Australian democracy. We've discussed this before during the Transit Zone too, compared to some of those other limping Anglophone democracies in the United Kingdom and the USA. Compulsory voting, woven into our federal political culture since 1924, that now induces a habitually high turnout with very low resentment. Preferential voting, instead of that primitive first-past-the-post plurality system, where a candidate with way less than 50% of the vote can be elected, and our centralised Australian Electoral Commission, independent and so far, fingers crossed, big lie-proof. Are these pillars, as you call them, or strands rock-solid for the future, do you think? Compulsory voting is perennially under attack from the right. Preferential is increasingly optional and a bit fraught. Preference whispers and other aspects of it. How long will pencil and paper be the norm? Computer voting could come in. How solid is our preferential system and compulsory voting? I don't know the answer to the one about preferential voting. Um, in fact, I, I kind of make a, a bit of an argument for, to changing to proportional voting so that the lower house is elected in the same way as the upper house and that we have multi-member electorates with a view to better representing the diversity of Australia as it is at the moment. I actually think compulsory voting is pretty rock solid in Australia. I haven't seen um, any polling on this recently, but I I think it's pretty well supported. And I think part of the reason is we do look at Britain and America and see what happens when you don't have compulsory voting. You end up just wasting huge amounts of money manipulating the people who actually come along to vote or, you know, manipulate whether they come along to vote. There's huge amounts of money spent just getting out the vote, as the Americans say, but it also opens up the ability of parties and other institutions to put restrictions on voting in place so that you have to have certain forms of identification to even be on the roll, that sort of thing. So Barack Obama said something about this. He said, in America, it's increasingly the governed choosing who gets to vote for them rather than citizens choosing who they vote for. So I think, you know, it's reversing the whole power structure um, and making it terribly undemocratic. So I I don't think that's going anywhere in Australia. You're right, the right-wing parties do occasionally make a noise about getting rid of this, but I don't don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. And the AEC, 
as long as their funding's maintained. And there's been issues around that. Certainly at the last election, they had trouble manning all the polling booths in remote areas. I think Lingari was a particular electorate in the Northern Territory that suffered because of lack of AEC staff, which was all down to funding. So this is certainly something that the crossbench and the government have to look at, I think, making sure that organisation is able to do the job that we ask it to do. Um, Because, again, I think it's a very popular and necessary part of it. So, yeah, I I don't think they're going anywhere, but like like all these things, they're always under pressure. I'm going to admonish you to stay calm, and I'm telling myself to stay calm, because now we're going to talk about the media and the role of the media in the last federal election and, again, in the recent Victorian state election. How can we forget, Tim, the obsessive gotcha debacles of the federal election with Albanese being counted out in the first few days of the campaign by News Corp, of course, but also by Channel 9, media outlets, and the public broadcaster, ABC, they all got in the game together. Is there now a disconnect between the often propaganda-soaked copy of the mainstream media, and I use that term advisedly, uh, bearing in mind your admonition in the book, and how citizens are processing both reportage and opinions? Has, as a start on the answer... Has the Murdoch influence died, particularly looking at the last Victorian state election? They don't have the power to influence election outcomes in terms of winners and losers. I think they still have power to constrain the sorts of arguments that we have. For instance, the freedom discussion we were having before is definitely constrained by the sorts of voices that the media lets in. I think you would have to say Labor could have had an even more successful federal election had not most of the media been railed against them for the previous three years in the way that it was, especially during the campaign. You cite in the book, and it's stayed in my mind because I was watching that telecast when Lee Sales, when it was clear that Labor had won, turned to Tanya Plibersek and said, what did Labor do wrong? For me, that just distilled the whole problem in many ways. I had a lot of journalists say to me when we were talking about stuff that had happened during the campaign, a lot of journalists raised that particular example with me as what was she thinking? And, you know, maybe to give her the benefit of the doubt here that, you know, it is just that kind of instinctive, my job is to challenge, and and this was a way of doing that. So so maybe that's all it was. But I, I think a lot of people felt it was an unwarranted. And I I think the problem with that moment and whether it just happened to be loose sales, if if any other journalist has said it, I think it would have got the same reaction, was that it kind of crystallised this sense that a lot of people had that the media had been very anti-Labor. So even in the moment of a famous victory, they were still piling on Labor in a way that kind of reinforced the notion that the media had been piling on Labor. So I think it became emblematic of all that had gone wrong with the media reporting during the election because it was a particularly bad effort of reporting during the campaign. And you mentioned the early part, day one, wasn't it, with the gotcha question. You know, Albanese most definitely should have been able to answer that question, but the fact that he couldn't, well, big deal. As Adam Bant said later, Google it. It wasn't the end of the election, as some journalists tweeted, and I quote the tweets, um, and it certainly wasn't the end of the world. And again, it just spoke to that mindset of the way elections are covered in that very confrontational sort of way, and it is all about catching someone out. I, I don't think they could believe their luck that they, like day one, he's made this gaffe 
gaff, you know. They ran with it for, what, the next three weeks, at least half the campaign. It kept coming back and back and back and back. Um, even after Adam Bant, a couple of weeks later, did the Google it, mate, line at the press club, Albanese was still being held to account for that. And I think it was one of those things where most people went, oh, you know, give me a break. The forms of storytelling that are culturally embedded in our society, the journalism obviously draws very liberally upon uh, the nature of narrative, the necessity for a binary that sort of drives so much of this, that there has to be a binary, there have to be heroes and villains, there has to be cause and effect, there has to be up and there has to be down. Those sort of metaphors that are so embedded in our culture and in storytelling itself, I think that's part of the part of the problem within journalism at the moment, that they're They've become more and more enthusiastic about storytelling of that type, whereas the reality that you and I live in is multipolar, it's much more nuanced, much more complex, and complexity and ambiguity seem to be the enemies of journalism. Without a doubt. You want a big headline and you want a big lead and you need an angle and uh, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, and this is kind of form and function thing in, in the limited space of a newspaper column or the columns of a newspaper, it's harder to do nuance in that space when you've got a word limit and space limit. Same with time limits on radio and, and television. It is hard. So, you know, you want shortcuts to be able to convey the information in an engaging way. So you fall back on these kind of storytelling techniques. As you say, you know, politics is much more complex than that. I think the thing that bugs me these days about all of this is that logic of paper still applies in the digital age where there is actually time and space to approach that storytelling differently, that conveyance of information to an audience. And partly that is about the media rethinking their relationship with the audience. What am I actually trying to give them here? And it is part of that. It needs to be less top-down. As Paul Kelly always used to say, there are three things you need to know. It's that kind of logic. That no longer applies. That teacherly approach from journalists to their audience needs to be lost and they need to reinvent themselves around what is actually useful for people to know. Greg Jericho, the economic journalist for The Guardian, came to prominence by making this exact point during the um, 2007 election where he was actually, as a citizen, waiting for information about a particular policy that affected his family that the government was going to be talking about at a given press conference. And whatever the scandal of the day was, just dominated the press conference. So he, he didn't get any of that information. And uh, this is sort of what brought Greg to prominence because he, he made such a compelling case about what had gone wrong with the media coverage, the way the election was covered. And that still holds. They're still not really asking themselves what is useful and important for the audience to know rather than, ah, we gotcha. So, Tim, we do seem to have a... A baked-in problem with the media now, don't we? Our political media particularly, the Canberra Press Gallery, but the media more generally, and we've got more independent media emerging online with blogs and writing like yours and lots of others. But how endemic, how threatening is the problem we have with our, not only our political media, but the media generally, the way the world's framed, the sort of assumptions they peddle for us as citizens in a democracy? Because overall, you're kind of optimistic about the future of our democracy, <laughs> but 
the media is such a big plank, isn't it, the so-called fourth estate. How bad is it? I think it's pretty bad. The issues around media are deep. And they're to do with everything from the business model. They're just not making enough money to employ enough people to train them properly to be able to do this. But I think the issue is deeper than that. I think what we sort of touched on briefly before, the the notion of the shift from the logic of paper to the logic of digitisation still hasn't really sunk in. We've still got kind of an 18th century mindset about how to do journalism in the 21st century. Even to the extent of still thinking in terms of a front page in the main story. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the the old joke is about, you know, isn't it amazing that there's just enough news every day to fill the newspaper? We kind of forget journalism is always about making choices. Who do you talk to? What angle do you bring to it? Who don't you talk to? You know, it, it's all decision-making. And, and a lot of that's driven by the unconscious values of the news organisation itself or the journalists themselves. We probably don't give enough recognition to those sorts of factors in the way journalists are trained. The optimistic side of that is that the emergence of these digital forums does allow a diversification of voices, maybe not with the same power. Power is still a big issue, but there are platforms for more diverse voices than there was, but we just we, we haven't really got good at using those platforms yet. A lot of people sort of, you know, accuse me of being anti-journalism or anti-media and stuff, which isn't true at all. We absolutely need a strong institutional media organisation. It can't just be replaced with voices of individuals online doing stuff. You need to stand up to the power of other institutions, like whether it's government or business, you need a powerful fourth estate. You need a powerful institutional presence. And that's very hard to maintain when there's no money in journalism anymore. As a commercial undertaking, it's very hard for journalists to do their job properly. And one of the things I argue in the book is that we're reaching the point where, well, we have reached the point where government has to treat journalism as a policy issue in the same way that they treat health and education. You absolutely need it for the proper functioning of a civilised modern democracy and there needs to be more public funding of journalism, not just the ABC. The ABC certainly needs to be better funded and have their funding secured. And that would go a long way to fixing the problems that we have. A, a genuinely independent, well-funded national broadcaster would be a huge improvement on what we currently have. I think it probably goes beyond that, whether it's through tax breaks or not that Mr Murdoch's paying much tax anyway, I don't think, but tax breaks or other incentives or direct funding, you need public money coming into this space to maintain the integrity, the strength of that institution so that it can do its job properly. Tim, you referred earlier to that idea that's in the book and that you've mentioned before about proportional voting for the House of Representatives in the Australian system. Do you know the, the election that really brought it all home to me was the last West Australian election where there was such a disconnect between the overall votes for particular parties and the number of seats they had in the parliament, the Greens especially, that it was just such a disconnect there. In your view, is there any sniff of 
more radical electoral and voting reform in prospect in Australia, something akin, as we've discussed before, to the New Zealand system with multi-member electorates and a list system to ensure a more commensurate number of seats for smaller parties. The Greens would certainly benefit from that, but perhaps not so much the independents. Oh, no, I think the independents could benefit from it. Is it in prospect? Probably not. There's so much else going on at the moment. And in terms of areas of electoral reform, I think the Indigenous voice to Parliament is going to take up that whole space, and rightly so, throughout the rest of this term of government. Once that's done, maybe we can start talking about those issues a bit more. I talk about other reforms along those lines so that you get a more grassroots involvement in the policy making decisions. So, you know, having um, citizens' assemblies and citizens' juries talking about particular issues. I'd really like to see a lot more of that. In other words, an institutionalisation, if you like, at the federal level of the methodology of engagement that was successful for the independent candidates. What does the word mandate mean to you these days? We saw Labor puffing themselves up talking about mandates after the last election to reassure themselves they were still the dominant majority party after that election. And I guess in orthodox terms they were. But what does mandate mean these days? And what could mandate mean in the future as we see this trend that you've analysed in the book continue? Mandates, obviously, just thrown around by everybody is, you voted for us, we won, so therefore we get to do whatever we want. You know, it's just a a way of asserting their agenda over everybody else's. But I think the big advantage with having a bigger crossbench, especially if it gets to the point where it um, has the balance of power, is it it forces deliberation on the parties. They can't just come in and say, well, this is what we're going to do and, you know, we're going to listen only to these amendments and not those ones sort of thing. It opens up the possibility of that deliberation, you know, as long as the, the actual members themselves are up to that task. But that's, again, this is some of the hope I take from the current batch of independents that we have. I think they would work really well in that environment. And I think the country would benefit greatly from having a mandate-free zone in the parliament. I've always been a little uneasy, and it was an interesting question we put to all the independents before the election, if there was a very tight result and there was a minority government with Labor and Liberal or LNP competing for support from those independents. And that was a question they had to give some sort of answer to. It didn't occur. But I must say that as you were speaking then, I was thinking of some of the at least ostensible cooperation that's gone on with the ICAC, the forging of the ICAC legislation with the independents. And they haven't been sidelined in quite the way that we've seen historically in Australian politics. But I just want to put the spotlight for a moment on Pocock in the Senate and the power that he has as an individual independent. And those scenarios where you do get single MPs, independents, perhaps having enormous power for a period of time. I always feel very uneasy about that. How do you feel? Yeah, it it shouldn't just rest with one person. But it is just the nature of the voting system up there that occasionally throws up this, as it did with Brian Harradine, who ends up with quite a lot of power. Again, it's down to the integrity of the individual. And again, we're very lucky, I think, to have someone like David Pocock in that position who takes the job very seriously and does listen to as many voices 
as he possibly can and does follow the evidence and isn't just driven by an ideological position. You want a more robust system because you're not always going to get a David Pocock elected into that situation. So you need some uh, checks and balances, to use a phrase, to protect against that. So I don't like that it winds up on one person's shoulder. It's not fair on them. You know, it's a huge responsibility. It puts him under enormous pressure, which he seems to be dealing with quite well. But it would wear you down after a while, always having to be the one who decides and probably making no one happy or, or at least hearing volubly from the people that you're not making happy all the time. It would be a very difficult role to play and it shouldn't just fall on one person's shoulders. Tim, as you know, I'm a staunch Republican. I have very little time for this focus that we see from the Australian Republican movement on changing our head of state being the main game to forge a republic. For my money, it's changing that section in the Constitution to ensure executive power is vested in we the people, not a foreign monarch, or for that matter, another abstraction such as the Commonwealth. I don't want a crown light or status republic. Where do you stand on the idea of the republic, which is probably the next big thing after Indigenous voice? Well, yes, and I, and I think the two things go together. We need a head of state that embodies the sorts of values that the voice to parliament also embodies. I'm not exactly sure what shape that ends up taking. I'm sort of moving away from the notion that it has to be the head of state has to be invested in a single individual and it has to be some variation on a president or a governor general or something like that. I'd be happy to see a rotating body of more than one person who fulfills that kind of, you know, it's a constitutional cornerstone, depending on how we end up describing it. But, you know, obviously the, the Governor-General has a constitutional role in our situation and any replacement for that system would probably have some sort of similar constitutional role. There's also the, the ceremonial side of things. Um, it doesn't have to be embodied in, a, in an individual, in a variation on the um, president or governor general. It might be interesting to have a rotating three-people head of state system, and probably that protects us, potentially protects us against the sort of partisanship that can happen, as we saw you know, the allegedly independent crown during the dismissal in 1975 was anything but independent. And as Jenny Hawking's tireless research has shown us, the crown from the actual crown, from the queen down, was very well across what was happening. And, and we know then Prince Charles, now King Charles, wrote letters of congratulations to the Governor-General about the dismissal. It's fanciful to think that these things are genuinely independent. So any checks and balances we can put on that very great power that they have in constitutional terms would be a good thing, I think. If our overarching discussion, Tim, is about democracy, is there a chance then we could move ourselves out from the shadow of centuries of British governance and their parliamentary system? They still have a House of Lords, for goodness sake. Mm. And that idea of a hierarchy and outsourcing the power to an abstraction called the crown, however it operates, and for us to, in a way, do a, a clean slate and say legitimate power and authority does reside with the people. Is there a chance we could do that in a Republican referendum? Yeah, I think so. It's a long process. It's a long discussion. We're not having it properly at the moment. I don't think the Australian Republican movement, the formal organisation that's kind of had carriage of this, is, is doing a particularly good job of that. They seem to have this still have this minimalist model and, you know, just call the Governor-General a, 
a president sort of model. It's top down still. They're still trying to find someone to fulfill that role rather than organizing kitchen table conversations and, and letting those sorts of issues emerge and individuals emerge. But yeah, it could be done and it should be done. And, you know, if we're going to call ourselves democracy, it has to be done. But I think it is very important that we do move ourselves away from the royal umbrella, the attachment to the British past, you know, not to denigrate it or anything, but we are a different country now. And in a democracy, as you say, sovereignty should rest with the people themselves. And I would like to see that embodied in our constitutional arrangements. Tim, we've spent a little bit of time on voting and systems of voting and tying that to the efficacy and authenticity of our democracy. But between elections is when a democracy really operates and is often stress-tested. Just to take the most obvious examples, the fossil fuel industries still seem to have a squirrel grip on our political class. Influence peddling, the poker machine and other gambling industries spring to mind and continually unfair access to decision-making by elites remains rife. Isn't that so baked in now within our system that it seems impossible to position a new fulcrum? Yeah, it is. It's very hard. I actually spend a lot of time in the book talking about this, you know, the power that continues regardless of who is in government. Um, and there is a, a concentration of power that happens and, and is actually supported by that system. And this is one of the advantages of having um, a stronger crossbench, I think, is that it undermines some of those sources of power. And I think that's what we should be working towards. And I get the impression from the way election results are going is that more and more people are coming around to this way of thinking. With good reason, traditionally Australians have thought for reasons of stability, it's very good just to have the two major parties controlling most of political representation. It does offer us very stable government, which has probably served us reasonably well. But I think what's become more apparent is that the flip side of stability is corruption. So when it's just the same people, the same political class, swapping jobs amongst themselves, talking to themselves, consulting themselves, paying each other wages, interviewing each other in the media, that you risk that whole political class loses touch with the people they're meant to be representing. And I think undoubtedly that's happened, but it also invites corruption. And I think we've seen that with with the Morrison government and, and around um, issues to do with um, pork barrelling. Um, that became very obvious uh, during the course of the last government. So this is actually why I think the reform with the creation of the, the NAC, the creation of that is a huge step, huge democratic reform, and we should be very pleased. Again, I, I would like to see all of the deliberations, public, et cetera, et cetera. But it's much better that we've got what we've got than the nothing that we would have had if, if the Liberals had been re-elected. Protecting against corruption is a democratic reform because de democracy has to work, has to be clean, has to work in everybody's advantage, not just for the richest voices to be heard. Tim, to you personally as a writer now, as we come to the end of our conversation almost, I've always admired how you use a kind of transparency in your writing. You put some very strong arguments, and I don't think you leave any readers unclear as to where you stand on the big issues, but also you let the reader see your workings in some ways, especially around more problematic or ineffable positions where doctrinaire certainty, which is all, all the rage these days, is intrinsically a deception, in my view anyway. Hasn't that always been your approach? If so, where did it come from? It seems to rely 
on rationality as a given in the process of exposition and persuasion. Where does this stem from? Well, thank you for that. I, I take that as a very high compliment. Um, so thank you. I think it comes from the fact that I'm a bit slow on the uptake, actually, um, for most of these things. Like, you know, I don't necessarily – this is what used to happen. I used to watch media and politicians and other, you know, experts and stuff talking about it. And half the time I, I really didn't understand what they were talking about. And I thought, oh, they must just be brilliant. How do they know all this stuff? And then I guess once I got a bit older and started thinking about these issues a bit more, I sort of – you know, you you learn about things, and I, you know, I went to university and and studied, and that that teaches you how to think, etc. But I think a lot of my writing is just me explaining it to me. I really understand my own shortcomings of understanding, so I really have to explain it to myself in as simple terms as I possibly can. And I think that probably serves me quite well as a writer. It comes across fairly clearly. Yeah, people do say that occasionally that they like to read it because it does actually explain things in, a, in an accessible way. And as I say, I think that's a really high compliment, and I, I'm very grateful that people, people feel that about my writing. But the other, the other point that you made about you're never actually in doubt about where I stand on something, I actually think that's really important too, because no one's without their biases. And, you know, the media tries to hide from this by, you know, being balanced and allegedly objective. And, and, you know, there's a case to be made for that. But my way of approaching that is to be quite clear and upfront about where I stand on an issue. And then here's my explanation, given that bias. Now you can sort of, you know, you can take that into account when you're assessing my arguments. And I'm quite happy for that to happen, yeah. Tim, as you know, Interviewing and particularly political interviewing is one of my special areas of interest. And as we were critiquing just a little bit today, the media earlier in this conversation, I've always advocated that political interviews should contain somewhere in the exchange as decisions are examined, etc., the values framework that underpinned and animated those decisions. It hardly ever happens. It's just assumed. But I'm going to chuck it at you right now. What are the bedrock principles within your values framework that we might find in all your writing? I guess at heart, I'm an old-fashioned Athenian Democrat, but I would include women. <laughs> in the, uh, yeah. Obviously, Athens isn't, isn't the best model, really, when you think about it, though. You know, it had slaves and women weren't allowed to vote or participate in politics, etc. So, um, yeah, I would advocate for as open a society as possible to have as many grassroots people involved in the decision-making process as possible. And the logic of that is that the society is as fair and egalitarian as possible. And once they're your values, then it does lead you down a particular political path in terms of, I believe, in taxing and redistributing wealth. Um, I believe in public services, public health, public education, public media, etc., etc. So there's a very close alignment between that kind of egalitarian democracy that I believe in and then the sorts of politics that I would ideally pursue. How are you seeing the Albanese Labor government so far? Is it just that we're experiencing a bit of a jolt by way of contrast to the previous Morrison government? He's a very different character. doesn't appear anyway to be quite as ego-driven. He lets the team do their job just a little bit more than Morrison ever did. How are they going, do you think? And are there at least tiny green shoots of possibility here 
for a different sort of politics. Yeah, you, you cannot underestimate the value of the fact that they are not the Morrison government. The Morrison government was a horrible, horrible government who really weren't interested in governing in any conventional sense. It was about favours and mates and and that sort of thing. It lost a sense of governance as public service, I think. I don't hold a hose, mate. You know, that just says such a mouthful, really, at the end of the day. You know, Albanese um, and his government are benefiting greatly from the fact that they're, they're not that. Look, I, th- I think it's way too early to tell. There's, there's been some really positive stuff. They're doing some great stuff. And I kind of, on the whole, accept that he is trying to be more cooperative than confrontational in the way that he's doing his politics. But I'm not convinced when push comes to shove that that's going to maintain itself. We'll we'll see. I don't know. I do worry that the Labor Party's been drifting away from being a Labor Party for a long time. And I think that drift is continuing. And you see it around not, not just the subsidisation of fossil fuel industries and stuff like that. And I understand, you know, I I can hear all the Labor supporters yelling at me already about this, that, you know, this, you know, you've got to take things slowly. You've got to take people with you. I accept all of that. But that methodology is fine as long as you're still heading towards that overarching egalitarian, democratic, redistributive more equal sort of society. And I worry sometimes that that gets left behind in the pragmatism of governing in a way that it doesn't need to. Like the stage three tax cuts, I understand exactly why they don't want to break a promise and garbage that would be tipped on the head if they did. But I think they could weather that, especially at the moment. They should never have agreed to it in the first place. It's that classic case of how pragmatic politics ends up shifting your values because, yes, we all understand that they had to make it a non-issue so they agreed with it just so that they weren't chastised about it during the entire election campaign. But then they're stuck with it and then we're all stuck with it sort of thing. So I think there has to be a better way of doing these things. So, you know, at the moment, I think the jury's out. I think they've done some really great stuff. They've done some really petty and silly stuff. I think cutting the staff allocations to the crossbench was silly and knee-jerk and, you know, a classic case of scorpion and the frog going across the river, the scorpion stinging the frog. Because I think it does damage to the Labor Party. It's hugely advantageous to Labor to have those independents holding those traditional Liberal seats, very obviously. So why not let them maintain their staff? But that's not the reason you let them have the staff. You let them have the staff because that's how they do their job properly for their communities. Um, so I think that's important. So there's been a couple of missteps, but you would expect that. But on, on the whole, you'd have to give them a pass at least at the moment. It's too early to say what, what sort of government they're going to be, but they're in a lot of ways they're heading in the right direction. For me, the two giant litmus tests are aged care and childcare, beginning and end of life, where the profit motive has become so woven in the public dollar has just been diluted and diluted and diluted, and that's tied to standards of care as well. So if we could see that sort of root and branch reform on aged care and child care, all important for the economy, even aged care, but certainly child care, that would convince me that we're heading in the right direction. The other one I'd throw in there is education. Our education system, our public education system is just a disgrace at the moment. Labor have some responsibility for this in the way that they uh, implemented the Gonski recommendations back when they were last in government. 
and it's just become ridiculous. It's wrong to even call our private schools private anymore. They're majority government funded, that they get more money than the state schools. It's just, it's insane. And a democracy can't function like that. You can't have that sort of inequality in education. And all of that public money that's going to private schools should be redistributed to the public education system. So that's a huge one, I think. I would totally agree with that. And particularly here in Victoria, which has a history of private education more strongly than, say, New South Wales or Queensland. Let's finish our conversation with the big lens, the big wide lens back on. It's a given, isn't it, that authoritarianism is on the rise internationally, globally. We've seen ostensible, what I've come to call facade democracies in places like Hungary, I guess, but in other places too, where they're no longer really democracies at all. We've put up with Singapore for a long time, but we've seen other ones evolve. The United States, the supposed great democracy project, is in tatters to me at the moment, to my way of thinking. I just don't know what's going to happen with the Republican Party there. And of course, in the United Kingdom, what a mess has occurred there as well with changes of prime ministers. So looking around the world, democracy doesn't seem to be in good shape. Here, you've called it a reprieve, the election that we had in May 2022. Where does your optimism for the future of our democracy, specifically here in Australia, actually spring from? What are the risks and what are the opportunities? We have a long history of good democratic reform. We're a country that has instituted a lot of democratic practices from the secret ballot to the invention of the AAC, our different voting systems so that we're not using stupid first-past-the-post systems that you referred to before. We have a history of this sort of reform. We're going through a kind of an informal sort of reform at the moment as that elevated middle, that 30% who aren't voting for the major parties anymore are looking for other places to go. I think our temper is democratic on the whole, flawed, but democratic. As we were saying earlier, I think it's absolutely underpinned by a couple of key pillars, the preferential voting, compulsory voting, and the existence of the Australian Electoral Commission. As long as they stay in place and do their job properly, you know, we have reason to be hopeful. And I think that is what the last election showed, that fairly serious reform of the system was able to happen by using the tools that we have at our disposal. People did use those tools and change the nature of our governance. And I think that will continue. So I get teased a bit sometimes by I've noticed about being a bit naive or a bit too optimistic about it all. But I would say two cheers for Australian democracy. I think we're kind of doing okay. But there's a lot of really big tests coming up and none bigger than the Indigenous voice to Parliament. It'll be really interesting to see how we as a country deal with that. If we can get through that successfully, which I think we can, then that'll be a big step towards being the genuine democracy that I think most of us want Australia to be. And it also plays into that never-ending conversation we have in this country about our identity, our underlying culture, our character, what we really want. Are we, as you sort of implied a moment ago, naturally democratic, the fair go idea, et cetera? That's all in the mix somewhere there. Tim, thank you for the book. It's a great read, and I'm glad you put all that hard yakker into pinning down what I think has been, is and has been, a very important part of Australian political history. Thank you for the book, and thanks for your conversation today here in the Transit Zone. Uh, Thank you very much, Peter. Always a pleasure to speak with you. 
Our guest this time in the Transit Zone, fellow Zone podster and author of Voices of Us, the independence movement transforming Australian democracy, Tim Dunlop. Voices of Us is published by New South Books. If you'd like to email us at the Transit Zone, here is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. We always welcome your comments, questions, ideas for new podcast episodes, transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening, and please join me again soon right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit Zone.